Well, welcome again. My name is Ben Kearns. Oh, thanks, Danny. And uh, I'm one of the pastors here on staff. And um, it's really interesting when you think about what forms your identity, when you think of like, who are you as a person? And so when I think of who Ben Kearns is as a person, you know, I immediately think that Ben is married to his wife, Katie. He can be this 24 years. Uh, right now we're parenting like we're brand new with, you know, having teenagers, which means I'm also, uh, Ben Kearns is a parent of teenagers. What a joy to have adolescents in your home who just want to share every thought and feeling with their parents. It's so kind and great. Um, ben Kearns went to Samarin High School, class of 93. Um, it, it's funny, whenever Ben's around Novato, people are like, you go to Samarin? And like, yes, like, I'm a local. Who knew that? Um, a couple other things. Did you know um, Ben Kearns is actually t- running a marathon next week? So next week, uh, you can pray for Ben because I'll be dying. Um, dying is what's going to happen. Um, one of the other things is you may not realize this about Ben, but Ben is like a Cadbury egg. He has this very hard, steely exterior, but inside he's just a softy. Ben's a softy inside, so don't, don't let my, his, uh, his steely eyes deter you. But on a deeper level, right, Ben is a follower of Christ. He's a disciple of Christ. He's a pastor. And more and more and more, Ben longs to be somebody who's not just a follower of Christ, but understands his identity as being a son of God, a beloved son of God. And uh, if you weren't too distracted by me speaking in the third person, you would see that there is this identity that is formed, that we all have these things that our identity is rooted in, and those things form us and shape us. But speaking in the third person is kind of interesting. It's, it's actually a, a grammatical term. It's called Eliaism. Eliaism. And uh, if you're a big Harry Potter fan, Dobby, I mean Dobby, just kidding. Dobby, is, uh, he speaks in the third person, right? And uh, in, in our culture, if you speak in the third person, and if you even Google this, it's like you're a narcissist or you're not quite educated or there's something really wrong with you. And you're, I think you probably felt that way in the very beginning of my sermon. But that's actually, um, that's how it is currently. But in the ancient, uh, in the ancient times, uh, you know, Socrates actually said speaking in the third person was kind of the beginning of wisdom. It allowed you to step back and kind of see things differently. We always see things through our, our own lens. We speak in the third person. It's like this trick that teaches wisdom to step back. Uh, Julius Caesar, um, around the time, um, right, right then too, also um, thought that. And the reason why I bring that up is because the author of the Gospel of John refers to himself in the third person six different times throughout the Gospel of John. He refers to himself as the beloved disciple or the disciple whom Jesus loved. Six different times as he's writing out this manuscript, telling about the story of Jesus, he inserts himself into the story in the third person. But the way that he inserts himself is with this identity statement. He doesn't just say, I'm John, I'm the faster runner than Peter, or I'm John, I'm Jesus' best friend, which he clearly makes those things clear. But when he make, what he does make clear is that Jesus, I mean, that John is the disciple whom Jesus loved. It begins with an identity statement. And the reason why I wanted to bring that up is because, like I mentioned earlier, for the next eight months, for eight months, we are going to be studying the Gospel of John. And it's not really our normal rhythm. I mean, we are a church that loves Scripture. We're rooted in Scripture. Um, But usually about every four to six weeks, we kind of mix it up and find some kind of creative and clever way to, to mix things up. But for these eight months, we said, listen, we want to be a church. We say it every Sunday, right? We want to be spiritually hungry people that are moving on this life towards Christ. But this life towards Christ isn't just a subjective spiritual journey that we're out there all by ourselves. We're people that are rooted in Scripture because Scripture points out who Christ is. So if we're going to be followers of Christ, we need to know who this Jesus person is. And so for eight months, we're going to slowly unpack the book of John. 
And what I love about this idea is I'm following Jesus. I, I titled the sermon, Falling After the One Who Loves My Soul. Because when we think about following Christ, at least, I don't know about you, but for me, I often think of, boy, this is about working hard, about trying hard. And listen, I want to work hard. I want to try hard. I want to honor God with my life. And I'm going to put my time and energy into this thing. But if we're not careful, all that time and energy we work hard at ends up shaping our identity. And we don't work hard to prove that God loves us or that we're good people. It begins that we are loved by God. We're adopted into the family of God. It's our identity in God that is the very first thing. And because of our identity, we are now compelled to follow Christ. And so that's what we're going to do. We're going to spend the next eight weeks following Jesus, looking at um, the gospel of John. And we're going to begin by using John's own self-understanding that we follow after the one who follows The one who loves my soul, excuse me. So let's begin in John chapter 1. So if you have a Bible, um, go ahead and grab it. There's one right in front of you or on your phone. But I'm going to ask if you considered for this series for the next eight months, we're going to be in John week in and week out. And if you have a good old school Bible, dust it off and bring it. There's something like, um, you know, the old guys like Anthony, what they used to do is they would take pens and highlight and write in the notes and you would, as a marker of the things that God's saying and doing. And so there's something just deeply um, formational about that. It'd be fun as a church to bring our Bibles and be taking notes along. But until then, you use the one in front of you or your phone works as well. But let's start in John chapter 1, and we're going to look at verses 1 through 5. It says this, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through Him all things were made, and without Him nothing was made that had been made. In Him was life, and that life was the light of all of humanity. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Now, that's just the first five verses of the prologue, and really the whole prologue is 18 verses. And when I knew that I was going to be doing the introduction of John, I've spent the last three weeks reading about reading and reading and reading and studying, 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 and I ended up having like 18 to 20 pages of notes. I'm like, gosh, there's so much good excuse me, good stuff in these just first 18 verses. I mean, it is so thick. It is so rich. And I'm like, listen, I know that you're thinking lunch and the 49ers game is coming, but I'm like, you know what? We're going to, because we love Jesus, we're going to go for two hours. I'm just kidding. I can't even sit in church that long. But I was thinking, how in the world do you get all of that information? What am I going to do? How am I going to navigate this? And so I called up one of my friends who's a really good preacher and I told him my, my conundrum. And he's like, yeah, what are you doing? That's like seven verses. I gave him like my ideas and even my ideas He's like, you just need to simmer down. No one likes you enough to listen to all that. He said, but you should consider this. You need to give them a mouche-bouche. Do you know what a mouche-bouche is? Oh, yeah. A mouche-bouche. It's a mouth-pleaser. It's a mouth-amuser. It's like it's what you eat at the beginning of a meal to kind of get your taste buds stimulated and ready for this really fancy meal. And like as a Neanderthal, I have no idea what a mouche-bouche is, right? I eat uh, chips and salsa like they're going out of style. And if there was a golden corral, I would be there for every meal. I want sodium and lots of it. But sophisticated people like yourself know that's not how you're supposed to eat. The French, no, that's not how you're supposed to eat. You eat delicate food that, that um, tantalizes all the parts of your, of, your taste of, of your taste buds, right? And you don't just eat to get full. It's an experience. And in really fancy restaurants, they don't just let you start the meal. They want to get your palate amused. They want to awake your, taste of, your, your sense of taste so you can enjoy the full meal. And so this is not going to be the full meal. We're going to spend eight months having 
big old fat meals. I mean, they are going to be rich and they are going to be hearty. And what's so great is because we have such an incredible and dynamic preaching team, you are not going to get bored. If one of us were preaching for eight months straight, maybe, but because each of us approach the scriptures in a little bit differently, because God's formed us a little bit differently, we're going to get different voices speaking about different angles and it's going to be so rich. They are going to be meals that we are not going to want to miss. So this morning is just going to be a mouche-bouge. I'm going to give you four little morsels. And each one of these morsels could be giant meals, but instead they're just going to be little morsels. They're going to taste, they're going to amuse our, our, our sense of taste, our spirit, and our heart that hopefully God will use that to set the stage for all that God has for us coming forward. Isn't that cool? A mouche-bouge. I've never said that before. Now it's like it's fun to say. And I don't even like language. All right, so let's take a look at this right here in the beginning. We'll start with the amouge-bouge, course one. In the beginning was the Word. So right here, right out of the beginning, in the beginning was the Word. And what I love about John is John, right out of the gate, is saying, listen, people, you need to pay attention to who this Jesus is. In the beginning, the, in the beginning was the Word. Now, for all of his Jewish listeners they had memorized the Torah. And they knew that those very first words, in the beginning, God, is the very first few words of the Torah. So they think, in the beginning, God. And also he says, in the beginning was the word. And if you're a Jewish listener, all of a sudden you're like, whoa, I need to pay attention. The thing you're about to tell me about this Jesus person, right, you just sparked all of their childhood memories, all of their cultural memories, everything they ever thought they knew about Yahweh is now connected to this person, Jesus. And they are paying attention. But what's so clever about John is he's, he was written in a, writing in a time that it wasn't just the Jewish followers of Christ. The Gentile church has exploded. So there are all sorts of Christians who knew nothing about Jewish culture or the Torah. And so he says, in the beginning was the word, was the logos. And he used this word that if you were a Greek person, you knew exactly what he was talking about. Logos, the reason, the rationale, the philosophical underpinnings of the culture and the society. So if you were a Greek person, right, they love, they fancy themselves sitting around talking about and philosophizing, trying to understand the ways that the world worked. It's like what people do on Twitter, but instead of 140 characters, they would do it for seven and eight hours at a time. And, and so that was the world they were, were, they were talking about. And John says, listen, if you're a Greek-minded person, in the beginning was the logos. I'm going to be telling you about this person, Jesus, and you love philo philosophy, and Jesus is the root of all of the rationale that makes the world function. Oh, you're a Jewish person and you believe in Yahweh, the creator of heaven and earth? Jesus pre-existed pre with God before creation. So immediately a Jewish and Gentile audience are engaged with the story of God. And what I love about John is John has made it so possible. He's taken this giant step to his audience. and He said, listen, people, you need to pay attention to who this Jesus is. Sometimes in the church we go, hey, Jesus is a special thing. We hope people can come and figure it out if they can. Good luck if they can't. Oh, well, too bad. John is not like that. John said, listen, I'm going to make the giant step and I'm going to write in such a way that it is so compelling that people have to think about and consider who Jesus is. And what's interesting and fascinating about the book of John is even though he's so culturally aware and so culturally generous to make Jesus interesting and fascinating to the people around him, once you start recognizing the story of Jesus, you realize Jesus is a really difficult person to follow. And he has a lot of challenging things 
um, against the religious leaders of the time and against the culture of the time. And so he's not, he's not a simpleton. It's not like he just does this engaging thing, hoping that people fi- fall in love with this soft Jesus. He works hard to make Jesus available to his culture, but then makes sure that the culture understands the calling of who this Jesus is, that he's the Messiah, but not the Messiah who's going to conquer Rome. He's the suffering servant Messiah. And he's not the, uh, not the philosopher who's going to use wisdom to crush people, but the, he's going to use wisdom to serve and care for the weakest and poorest among us. So Jesus is the word of God right out of the beginning. The first amuse-bouge, amuse amuse-bouge, yeah. That's the very first thing he says, in the beginning was the word. Well, then he goes on to say, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. So the very next thing that, that John makes clear in the very next sentence is that the word, Jesus, is actually God incarnate. Now, if you've been around the church a long time, you're like, yeah, Jesus, God in the bod, God showed up. That makes sense. But if you are not a Jesus person, if you're not part of the church, that is a mind-blowing thing to think that Jesus, this, this rabbi, this person who has all this incredible teaching and wisdom, and everyone can make sense for what a philosopher is and what a rabbi is, but someone who then says, says that they in themselves are God, like that should give everybody pause. And for those of us who have been around the church a long time, I think we almost get a little bit too comfortable with that theological concept. Yep, Jesus, God incarnate, that totally makes sense. But when we approach John and we recognize that that Jesus is actually God, fully God, fully human, then the way in which he lives, the things in which he says, has all of the weight of God himself saying and doing those things. And because most of us, we just enjoy the fact that God's invisible, which means we can make God into whatever we want. We can make God care about whatever we want. We can do almost anything we can't want because God is invisible. But once you put God into the person of Jesus, it narrows the lens. And now we have to deal with this actual person, not just a great teacher or philosopher, but someone who's actually claimed to be God. And what's interesting is throughout the, 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 the story of John, there's about six or seven times when Jesus makes it very clear from his own teachings that he does think he's God. John says it right at the end of the, the prologue. He says, No one has ever seen God but the one and only Son who is himself God, and he is the closest relationship with the Father has made him, has made him known. He also says that I and the Father are one. He says, before Abraham was, I am. And for us, we're like, what does that even mean? But you can tell that the Jewish listeners at the time knew exactly what that meant. Because every time you would make a statement like that, the, the, the religious leaders wanted to throw rocks at him and kill him because they was blaspheming because he was making himself equal to God. Now, if you walked around the streets of San Francisco, you know, you, it's not uncommon to find people who think that they are God and will blurt out statements, right? That's not un, an uncommon thing. What made Jesus more challenging, though, was that he also then performed these miracles. He not only said the things, but he backed them up with his actions. And John very meticulously maps out seven different miracles, starting with turning water into wine, yes. Um, free food, five, feeding the 5,000, yes. Um, he heals uh, people who are born lame, born blind. But it wasn't until the end of his ministry where his friend Lazarus, who has been dead for four years, I mean, for four days, that would be even, that'd be more incredible. He was dead for four days. He goes to Lazarus's tomb and raises him from the dead. And in Jewish culture, once someone dies, right, you sit and you mourn, and it is a known thing in the community when death has shown up. And so everybody in that town had known for four days. Everybody had been around dead people enough to know what, bodies, what happens to bodies in four days. And when Jesus shows up and says, remove the stone, 
and Lazarus comes out in his bed garments, everyone just freaked out. I mean, could you even imagine? And it was at that point that the religious leaders really were like, okay, this is like the big time. And you realize from that moment on, everything then moves directly towards the cross. So Jesus is the word incarnate. He's God. He he proved it with his language. He knew it in the way he spoke about himself, and he knew it with his actual actions. And so the challenge for us, and we're going to see throughout the book of John, is that when we want to be followers of Christ, it's not just a good self-help book. It's not just a good rabbi, but this is God himself revealing his heart, revealing what it means to be fully human, what it means to be people who are made in God's image. All right. The third amuse-bouche is that the Word brings life. So in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning, and through Him all things were made. Without Him nothing was made that had been made, and in Him was life. It's such an awesome, awesome picture. Before creation, before the creation of the world, Jesus, somehow and however the Trinity works, Jesus is with God actually partaking, participating in the creation of the world. All of the beauty and diversity of all of creation. When you are in the, when you're at the ocean, when you're hiking on a mountain, when you look at water, when you're just outside seeing beautiful flowers, all of creation, right? It shouts to the glory of God. Jesus had his hand in that. When the psalmist says that you were knit together in your mother's womb, I just imagine that Jesus was intimately involved in crafting you and making you going, gosh, this is going to be my precious daughter. This is my precious son, intimately involved in the forming and creating of you. Jesus is the author of life. Um, John, throughout the book of John, we get some of these different pictures of what that means. In John chapter 10, verse 10, right, says the thief has come to steal and kill and destroy, but I have come that you might have life and have it to the fullest, to have it abundantly. Jesus is so clear that it listens, listen, the way that I have come to live, you live this way, you're going to live the full and abundant life, the way that I intended it to be. Now we know that we live in a broken world that is full of hatred and rebellion in all of the shadow side of the human experience. But Jesus has come to redeem that, to forgive that, to heal that, and longs for his people to model the true life, the life of sacrificial love and service and servanthood and care and mercy and reconciliation, right? That's what it is. He brings life. And so on one hand, that's what he teaches us what it means to live this abundant life. That's one thing that he does. The second thing that he does, he makes very clear, um, right? In John 3, 16, for God so loved the world, he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have. Thanks, Danny. You're a super pastor. Everlasting life. You guys remember third grade, right? Everlasting life. And John makes it clear in a couple of different parts that if you trust in Jesus, you put your trust in Jesus, you not only get to live this full and abundant life now, but someday you get to go to heaven. You get to be part of the new kingdom, the new Jerusalem, the everlasting kingdom of God. What an awesome, awesome gift. And because we're broken and we're humans and, you know, Gosh, we just really struggle in that department as being humans. We've, we've always seemed to just can handle one lane of the story. And so, right, my, my, my more progressive friends will be like, listen, it is all about your life. It is all about right now, how you live right now. Jesus says to live this way right now, and we're going to usher in the kingdom of God, and we're going to be about love and mercy and care and caring for the widows and the orphans, and we need to live this way right now. And somehow my more conservative evangelical friends are like, hey, well, The world sucks and it's going to always be hard. But listen, if you trust in Jesus, you get to spend eternity with him. So whatever happens, you get to spend eternity with him. And both of those things are totally true. 
But what I love about John is that John does not let us live in this bifurcated way. He doesn't let make us or allow us to choose. We can live for God now or we can forget about God and we just want to make sure everyone goes to heaven. We live in this middle ground rooted in our identity. In John, right in the prologue, he says this, Yet to all who did receive him, to those who... um, Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And like I said in the very beginning, the very formational posture of us being disciples of Christ is not how we live right now. It's not even that we're going to go to heaven one day. It is that we are adopted daughters and sons of the King Most High. That is our foundational posture. And once we understand that we right now are adopted into the family of God, then you know that we need to live right now in a way that leverages all of the resources of the kingdom of God to expand the kingdom of God on earth as it is in heaven. And praise God that there is a hope for an eternal future when God is going to make all wrongs right. And we get to be a part of that entire process. And so when it says that the word brings life, he doesn't just bring life for how to live in the here and now. He doesn't just bring life for how we're going to live in eternity. He brings life knowing at the very core of our being, our very sense of identity has been changed forever. Isn't that such good news? We are dearly loved children of God. And John knew it in his guts. He was the beloved disciple. That was his posture all the way through. All right, the very last amuse-bouge is that the word is the light of the world. This is how the the very beginning of the prologue ends. So in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning, and through Him all things were made. Without Him nothing was made that had been made. And here we go. In Him was life, and that life was the light of all of humanity. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. I think if we are open-eyed human beings, we can resonate with Courtney's prayer that there is a shadow in which we live, that we are under. Like the world is a broken place. There is so much pain and so much suffering and so much pain and suffering that we can't even really understand because of where we just happen to be planted in human history and in location. But that, this world is a broken and dark place. But God isn't like done with the world. God didn't just throw the world away. God said, well, you know what the world needs? The world needs light. And Jesus came to be the light. In um, John chapter 8, verse 12, he says, then Jesus said this, that I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Jesus is the light. Jesus walks into the darkness, and while the darkness may not understand understand him, the darkness for sure is not going to squelch him. And he lived in such a way to be the light. But Jesus was born in this very tiny moment of history in this totally obscure part of the world. And yet Jesus is the light of the world. So there's more, I think, going on than Jesus simply being the light of the world. I think there's this invitation for you and for me to participate in the being the light of the world. Because if it was only about Jesus during his time on earth, only that tiny sliver would ever come to know and realize this. And what I love about the book of John is that John himself recognizes that he is the light. John was a fisherman. 
He was a, a son, what is this, one of the sons of thunder. That, I mean, it strikes me as someone who's like not just a kind-hearted, gentle old man. In his younger years, like, you know those guys, like, I don't know if you know Pat Haley in our church. You know, the guy who has like hands that are like double the size of normal suburban guy hands like myself. I mean, he was a man. He was a fisherman. He and his brothers wanted to be on the right and left hand of Jesus. And the way that they're thinking it is Jesus is going to take over Rome. And if there's going to be a battle to be fight, John's like, I am in it. That's where John started his life. But as he followed Christ, as he listened to the teachings of Christ, as he saw the miracles of Christ, ultimately as he gained the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit molded and shaped him, he became this sage. He became the father of the early church that was navigating really complex things. Like we think we have a complex moment we're living in. Imagine all of these Jewish Christians coming to find faith in their rabbi and Messiah, Jesus and then bumping into all these Gentile Christians who have none of the same sensibilities, none of the same morals or values when it comes to food and circumcision and what the different religious rites. And both of them were falling in love with Christ. Both of them were having the ministry of the fruits of the Holy Spirit. And imagine the tension. I mean, we read a little bit about it, but John was one of the people who sat and helped, find, helped the church find a way. John's life was changed forever because of Jesus, and he became the light. I think of my own life and what God has done from the time that I was a child through being a young adult and into midlife and what I'm hoping he's continuing to do, that he is continually molding and shaping me. He's continually healing me and restoring me, and hopefully that I also get to participate in the ministry of being part of the light of the world. One of the things that I love about our church, I mean, we have a most incredible worship team, right? We have this really great children's ministry team and tech team. You have a super hunky pastor that runs marathons. I mean, we should be like the number one church in the world. But the truth is all of that stuff does not even matter. And when we hear people coming to find Christ in our church, it's rarely because of all those things. It's because of you guys, it's because you guys already have a running start. As a church, for a long time, we've decided that we are going to be people who are followers of Christ. There's not a box to check. It's not, it's not to be a rule follower, but that we are going to be on this journey towards Christ, and we're going to be people who are going to be moved and shaped and changed by the Holy Spirit. We are going to be people who are going to exude the fragrance of Christ. And the testimony of more and more people who are coming to our church and coming and finding Jesus here is not because of what's happening on the stage. It's because they are bumping into you, real life human beings with real jobs, real heartache, real pain, real success, real kids, real challenges, and yet you are walking through them in a way that points and gives light to Jesus Christ. And so we, as the church, individually, we need to become followers of Christ. But corporately, we need to become followers of Christ. And by then we get to carry on the ministry of Jesus of being the light of the world. So for eight whole months, gosh, we hope you don't get bored. I don't think it's going to be boring, but for eight whole months, we are going to double down and we're going to say, if we're going to be a church that's going to matter to Marin for the kingdom, then we want to make sure we are followers of Christ with all the ways that cultures change, with all the conflicts that's happening, with all the ways we've forgotten to talk to each other, then we are going to double down and we're going to point to Jesus who is our rabbi, who is our Messiah, who is God incarnate, who has brought us life everlasting and has invited us to be the light of the world. And we're going to follow after him. But I really hope you hear you following after him, me following after him. It is not a works thing. It is rooted in our identity as daughters and sons of the King.
Well, I'm going to invite the band up, and uh, we're going to end our time with a little bit of worship. But there's this brand new song, and uh, some of you guys, it's not new at all. For me, it's a little new because I'm, I'm not hip on that stuff. But it's this song called Jaira. And if you're like a little older than me, there's a song called Jehovah Jaira. Remember that song? My provider. Any of you guys? I thought Arv would appreciate that, but no, that's fine. Jehovah Jireh, old song, but the idea is that Jireh is the Hebrew word for provider, and this idea that God will provide. And I just thought, what a beautiful song to end our time recognizing that as we're about to be on this journey, and it is going to be a journey of following Christ, which means it's a journey of putting effort in, of trying, of trying and failing, of doing things that, are, that take hard work. All of that hard work is rooted in our identity in Christ, where God loves us, he sees us, he cares for us, and he will provide for us. And so if you'd stand with me, let me pray for us and pray over us. We'll spend a little time of worship, and then we are on for quite a journey these next few months. Let's pray. Heavenly Father and our gracious God, I'm so thankful for my friends in this room. I'm so thankful for my friends online and for the gift it is to be your church. Thankful for the way that you individually have been wooing us and drawing us closer to your son, Jesus. And that you welcome all of us, no matter where we are on this journey towards you, you are generous and kind and long-suffering and waiting at the edge of your property to invite us into your family. And so I pray that you grab a hold of our hearts, that you grab a hold of our identity, that we would see who we really are in your eyes. And the more that we come to terms with who we are in you, Jesus, that we would be so excited to be generous with all of your blessings, to take on part of the family business of expanding the kingdom of God on earth as it is in heaven. We pray that you would care for us, mold us and shape us and heal us, but ultimately to empower us to be a witness for your son, Jesus, whom we give all the honor and glory, both now and forevermore. And all of God's kids said, amen and amen.